tonight we are getting into one of the most controversial passages on the subject. We've kind of said there are two or three main texts in the New Testament that, uh, that are used, obviously, to, to say that women can't preach, they can't pastor, or they can't lead. And the one that we're going to be talking about tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, specifically verses 34 and 35. But really, this section goes all the way to um, verse 38. So um, why don't we go ahead and read this, uh, this section anyway? So we've got it in mind. It's right forefront of thought as we start to talk about it, all right? So 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to read verses 34 through 38. This is out of the um, English Standard Version. So as we've mentioned many times, this is kind of a complementarian leaning version, but that's okay. This will be what we read from. Okay. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, or he should not acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Okay. Wow. That's pretty blunt, right? There's some heavy stuff in there. These are things that like, if you have a friend or a family member and they're kind of exploring faith and maybe they're new to church and the Bible, you're like, please don't go read that passage. Please don't read because it's just going to create all kinds of controversy. I'm going to have to answer a ton of questions. Can we just focus on the nice stuff? Can we focus on the grace? Can we focus on, you know, accepting everybody? Can we focus on the easier stuff? This is not an easy section. However, um, there is a lot within this passage and the surrounding letter that, that tells us how we're supposed to read it and how maybe the church has misread it uh, throughout time, okay? So the first thing that we can kind of acknowledge here is that um, Paul is not talking about literal silence in this passage. So when he says, you know, as in all the churches of the saints, that women should keep silent. Um, we know that he doesn't mean literally, don't make a sound, don't make a peep, you can't do anything. Because in earlier passages that we've read, he's talked about now when a woman prophesies in the church service or when she prays in the church service, this is the way that it needs to be done. So either Paul is contradicting himself or his use of the phrase, you know, women should be silent is a little more nuanced. All right. There's, there's some context and some understanding. There's some interpretation that needs to be done. Otherwise, Paul is flatly contradicting himself in a letter, like in the same letter. And the church like has known about this forever. It's there and it's apparent to absolutely everybody. Okay. So we know he doesn't literally mean like actual pure silence and if we were to take this passage to mean like everything that it says exactly, then you'll notice here he says, if a woman wants to learn anything, then she needs to ask her husband at home. Again, if we want to press this as far as we possibly can, then we could argue, and sadly people have throughout history, that women, should, adult women, should be denied opportunities to learn, specifically the scripture, but also other things as well. Um, the only appropriate avenue and venue for a female to learn is at home via her husband, okay? Nobody believes that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Nobody, at least in modern times, does, okay? So there are these interpretive kind of decisions that we have to make when we read these verses to understand what Paul was saying and what Paul wasn't saying in this uh, particular passage. You with me? Um, now, the, uh, the complementarian side of the debate will come to this passage and they'll say, okay, if we want to understand kind of the weird stuff that Paul is saying here in this in this section, if we want to understand how to interpret his words, then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. We're going to read them in light of 1 Timothy 2, which is like the other big passage in which, you know, Paul says that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man and things like that. So they'll use a different letter written to a different church actually at a different time in Paul's ministry, and they'll use that to be the interpretive lens through which they read these verses that we're talking about tonight. 
I don't think that's the best way to do it. I think the best way, the, the, the key interpretive passage that you need to focus on when you're reading 1 Corinthians 14 is not 1 Timothy 2. You need to read the section that 1 Corinthians 14 is in. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14 within the section of the letter that it falls in, which is 1 Corinthians kind of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and then 14. We want to let the immediate context tell us what did Paul have in mind when he wrote these really, really blunt words here in this passage, okay? So remember what we talked about last week. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had planted. He had turned it over to local leadership. And a few years later, they had all kinds of issues and problems. So he wrote them a letter to correct a lot of the issues that they had. Um, we read about how in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing because of disruptive dress in the congregation, right? We talked about that last week. He, he basically is writing to women who are flouting um, the, the conventions of the time, how women were expected to dress. And he writes to them and he says, hey, listen, you need to do kind of what the culture expects of you so that they can hear the gospel. They're not going to be so offended by your lack of headwear in the church that they miss the message of Jesus. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but if you go on in, in chapter number 11, Paul talks about disruptive communion. He talks about how when the Corinthians gather to have communion together, it's not like this solemn kind of moment of respect and honor of Jesus and his sacrifice. It's like people are eating, like stuffing themselves full. Some people are getting food. Other people are not getting food. Some people are getting drunk. Like they're drinking so much communion wine that they're actually getting drunk, which is bananas when you consider it. And so he says, basically, like, this is all disorder. You guys are out of order in the way that you're dressing, in the way that you're handling communion. In chapter 12, he talks about how they have a disruptive understanding of spiritual gifts. Or, uh, sorry, a disordered uh, understanding of spiritual gifts. Basically, he says, you guys think that these sorts of gifts are the most important and you're ignoring some of the less like um, spotlighty gifts. But those are the ones that you really need to focus on. Those are the foundational gifts that really matter. And then in chapter 14, which is what we're talking about now, he's going to talk about their use of spiritual gifts and how they're doing it in ways that are disordered, disruptive, confusing, and actually harmful to the message of the gospel. And it's within this particular context that um, he gets to the issue of disruptive communication from women or more specifically disruptive um, questions. So your first blank there is in 1 Corinthians, 14, uh, Paul is writing a section of the letter in which he promotes orderly function of public church gatherings. Orderly function. This whole section is designed to remind people that the way we do church matters because the way we do church can either help or hinder people from encountering Jesus. That is his entire point in this passage. And all of these different things he, he surfaces and highlights in each chapter, these are examples of the way in which the Corinthian church is disordered and they are preventing the gospel message from going out. We know that this is what he has in mind because in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28, this is the section that is right before these very controversial passages. Paul says this, well, my brothers and sisters, Let's summarize. This is the New Living Translation. Let's summarize. So he says, basically everything I've said, let me, let me just sum it up for you here. When you meet together, one of you will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three of you should speak in tongues. They must speak at one at a time. Someone must interpret what they say. And if no one is present who can interpret, then you, they must be silent in the church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. He goes on to say, let only two or three people prophesy and then let others evaluate what is said. But if someone's prophesying and another receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is currently speaking, let's stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after the other so that everyone will learn and everyone will be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and they can take turns for God is not a God of disorder, 
but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. So Paul says, I'm going to summarize everything I just said, and then I'm going to give you one more example before we move on. The point here is you guys are out of pocket. Your Sunday services are completely disordered. And so I'm going to show you all the ways in which you need to get in line so that the message can go out, people's lives can be transformed. That is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14. His point, his objective in writing this is not to silence women because he's against women in ministry or women in public roles or whatever. He's against anything that compromises the public's ability to, to hear the gospel. So we counsel a lot of church pastors, specifically church planters. We have calls just about once a week, if not more so. I mean, I even just flew out this last weekend to be at a church launch. And so we're constantly getting questions, the two of us, how do we do this? How, would we, how do we do that? Can you evaluate this and help us make this better? And to me in this moment, it's so clear that Paul is kind of like arc coaches <laughs> and going around being like, hey guys, this just needs to be tightened up mm -hmm. a little bit. And you know, you could gaff tape those, those uh, you know, cords, cords on, yeah. the, on the floor and you could like, you know, lift the music just a little higher and you could do this and you could add that and maybe change the lighting a little bit and just make it a little tighter. Yeah. And, and that's to me what Paul is doing here. Yeah, and the goal behind all of that is like, you want, a, you want an environment in which people are able to focus on the message, right? So that's why, and like, man, we, we probably don't have a lot of time to go off on a tangent here, but like, for instance, that's one of the reasons we have a pretty high bar when it comes to our worship team and yeah. who's allowed on stage to play or to sing. There are a lot of people that would love to be up there, but frankly, their skill level isn't quite there yet. And I love them, I want them there, but I also don't wanna put somebody up there that is distracting because of their inability to play drums in time with the rest of the band or whatever, you know what I mean? And so it's the same sort of idea here, though Paul's issue that he's addressing with the Corinthian church is much more significant, that essentially we can't allow our church services to happen in such a way that the message is hidden. That's the exact opposite point of a church service. We're supposed to put Jesus on display. And so we never want this to be like a talent show. And we also don't want it to be an opportunity for like people to get in the way, right, of, of Jesus' message. Okay, so um, let's talk about some interpretive issues uh, of verse 34 and 35. So basically when we say, we, everybody knows that Paul doesn't mean women are supposed to be completely silent. Both sides of the argument agree on this. But what sort of silence does he really mean here? And what should women be allowed to do or not allowed to do? All of that, it, it turns on basically three questions. So the first one is the intended location of the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, okay? So you'll see here in, um, I've got, again, the English Standard Version on the screen. And um, you'll see that the ESV includes uh, the, the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, at the start of the discussion of women speaking in the church. And so when you have it there, it basically makes Paul say, every church knows that women have to be silent. You with me? That's how every church does it. And you guys are the only ones that are not following the pattern here, okay? But then if you go to another translation again, like for instance, and this is the, um, the end of this, or the, the same phrase here, if we go back to the New Living, um, the verse before, verse 33, it says, for God is not the God of disorder, but of peace. Now the ESV just puts a period and it says, as in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent. But you see here in the NLT, it puts a comma and it includes that phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, as the concluding remark of verse 33. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what did Paul intend? Did he want, as in all the churches of the saints, to be a conclusion to the idea that God is a God of order and not disorder? Or did he want it to set a pattern that all, in all of God's churches, women do not speak? All right. Um, I want to show you an actual Greek manuscript. We talked about this way back in like week one or two. Um, so when we read our Bibles and we're like, dang, it's confusing. Yeah, it's way worse 
in Greek, okay? And the reason that it's worse is because A, it's a foreign language, but B, there are a lot of things that we've included in the English Bible to help us make sense out of it and like be able to read it a lot better that are simply not present in the original writing, okay? So like, let's start with the fact that when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, it was actually handwritten. You know what I'm saying? So like you see this, this is not Paul's original writing. You know that we do not have any of the original manuscripts, but this is a very, very, very early copy of Paul's writings. This is um, called Codex Vaticanus. It's one of the earliest manuscripts that we have. And um, you'll notice that it is handwritten. Like somebody's penmanship is on display. And that means that sometimes their A's might look like E's or, you know what I mean? They might transpose a couple letters and you just have to be aware that that's how it works. You'll also notice that this is written in what we call Koine Greek, which is the oldest, like it's the style of Greek that was present in the first century. This is not classical Greek. It's not later Greek. It's the common everyday Greek that people used in Jesus' day. And um, you'll notice it has no spaces in between words. So like, where does one word start and the other one end? Well, if you speak the language, you can usually figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Like if I give you a page that didn't have any spaces, you could read it and pretty easily figure out the words. But then there could be a couple of times where you're like, I don't know, those two words could go together and you wouldn't know necessarily. So sometimes you have to make an educated guess. You'll notice there are no paragraphs. There are no verses. There are no numbers. There are no chapters. It is no punctuation for goodness sake. No capital letters. It is one long block of run-on letters and that's it. And so the reason that I show you this is because when we are wondering where does, as in all the churches of the saints, this phrase, where does it go? It's like, well, it could go in either one. We don't know because Paul had no punctuation and there's no like indication in the letter as to where it belonged. The only thing that we can rely on is maybe the, the flow of the text itself. And it's for that reason alone that I believe the, the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, belongs in verse 33 as the conclusion. God is the God of order, not disorder, comma, as in all the churches of the saints. Um, A, because this is Paul's big point here. The thing he's trying to communicate above and beyond everything else is that God wants orderly worship. All of those chapters, including this one that we're talking about in 14, uh, they're all designed to help communicate, God wants you guys to do things decently in order. So it makes sense that that phrase would be there. The other thing that makes me pretty confident uh, that it belongs at verse 33 is that if we jump back to the ESV, which again makes it a part of verse 34, there's a, there's a weird construction here. Like, look at what Paul says. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. Like, why does he have in the churches twice in the same sentence? It seems repetitive. It seems redundant. It doesn't seem to flow or make a lot of sense. But if he said as in all, or rather, God is the God of order and not disorder, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, period, new sentence, women should keep, actually, he says your women, we'll talk about it, he doesn't say the women or women in general, he specifically says y'all's women need to keep silent in the church for they are not permitted to speak. So the, the construction of his, or the, the phrasing of his words here gives at least good evidence. It may not be perfect evidence or proof that that phrase belongs um, with the disorder comment instead of the women silence comment. But I think you can make a really reasonable argument that that's where it goes, okay? Um, the second interpretive issue is the intended meaning of the word silence in verse 34. So silence is the blank there. We've already mentioned that he cannot mean complete silence because there are too many examples in the Old and New Testament of women speaking um, in the assembly, speaking in the New Testament church, ministering officially in different capacities. And then, of course, I'll point you back to chapter 11, verse 5, in which he says, when a man prays or prophesies in the assembly, this is what he needs to do. When a woman does it, this is how she should be dressed. So he basically says, look, yes, women are going to be speaking in your uh, gatherings. And so he cannot mean literal silence. So the Greek word that's here, I've got it there on the on the page for you. It's sagao. <laughs> 
And it's very like, it's an interesting word here because it means to hold your peace or another idiom that we use in English is to bite your tongue. That that's really the meaning of it. Okay. The word that he uses here is different than the word that he's going to use in first Timothy two. So in first Timothy two, when he says, I do not permit a woman to speak, but she must be silent, right? The word that he uses there is different. It's not this one. It's Hesekia. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Now, the difference is that this particular word, it is silence by choice. Silence by choice. That's your blank there. He is calling on women to choose to stop talking in whatever way they may be here, it is something that they are going to do. When we get to 1 Timothy 2, he actually commands or places silence on those women. He is forcing them to be silent in 1 Timothy 2. Here, he's encouraging, enjoining, trying to convince women that they need to be silent. And the reason, as we'll see, is that in 1 Corinthians 14, the women's speaking is disruptive. But when we get to 1 Timothy 2, we're going to see it's a different issue and their speaking is actually dangerous. Dangerous. Because the women are buying into and propagating false teaching in the Ephesian church. The problem here in 1 Corinthians 14 is not false teaching, it's disruptive speech. So he says to them essentially, hey, ladies, like, and we're going to talk about why, okay? We're, we're not going to get through with tonight without explaining why he tells them this. He says, you guys need to bite your tongues right now, okay? You guys need to hold your peace. You need to be quiet for a little while, and then you're going to be ready to talk. But in 1 Timothy 2, he's like, ladies, shh, shh, no, stop. Don't say anything else. It's a very forceful word that he uses there, but not exactly here, okay? Silence by choice. And then the third one, do you want to jump yeah, in? You go ahead. You sure? Yeah, after this. Okay, I don't want you to be silent. I'm just going <laughs> to... All right, bite your tongue. All right, uh, and then, okay, so uh, the third question, the third interpretive question is which law, that's the blank, which law Paul is talking about in verse 34. So he says there, um, you know, uh, the woman should be in submission as the law also says. The, the problem here is that we really have no idea what law Paul is referencing. The most obvious candidate is the Old Testament law, right? Because that's very often, like the book of Galatians is full of references to the law, and he's talking about the, the 490 some odd commands of the Old Testament. Except there is no Old Testament law that says either women should be silent or women should be submissive. There's no Old Testament verse that says that. So it's like, Okay, maybe he's thinking about the law in kind of this general sense in which women have always been submissive and that's been the understanding of God's, like, yes, but there isn't a lot of evidence for that. And, and we have to make that leap to believe that's what he's talking about. So there've been some other um, options that have been proposed. One is that Paul is referring to Roman law. So as the law says, he's talking about Roman law and there are Roman laws that say women should be submissive and that women need to be silent in public and things like that. We're a little more familiar with those rules. The weird thing about that interpretation is that Paul never really appeals to Roman law as something that Christians should follow for the sake of following the law. Does that make sense? Like he, he never, in, in the head coverings thing, he says, ladies, you should really do what your culture expects and not dress in a way that is provocative or distracting. Um, but he never says like, even the law says you need you need to wear a head covering. He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to the Roman law in this way. Another uh, interpretation or possibility here that's been suggested is um, when he talks about law, he means natural law. Like in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about head coverings, you know, he, he talks about the creation of Adam and Eve and the natural way of things, men having short hair, women having long hair, all that sort of stuff. And again, in 1 Timothy 2, he's also going to refer back to the creation story. So maybe he has in mind the natural law or order of things that God established in creation. 
but he doesn't specify that. And so if we believe that's what he's referring to, then we're making an interpretive conclusion that we don't necessarily see any evidence for in the text. And one other final one is that Paul is referring maybe to the law of Christ. He talks about this in Galatians 6 too. There's some other places as well that it occurs. Um, so maybe he's referring to some law of Christ, but in Galatians 6 too, it says that Christians should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ which doesn't really fit with the context of what we're talking about here. So what law is Paul referring to? Nobody really knows. Yeah, please jump in. So could you apply the same kind of logic that mm -hmm. you did in the, you know, it says as in all the churches of the saints to this particular one as well? Like to me, it makes sense to say, as the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. I don't mm -hmm. know if there's something that would apply to that scenario? Yeah, no, there's nothing Old Testament-wise that would, like, directly relate to that. There's no Old Testament law that says don't educate a woman, her husband should be the only one that teaches her anything. We're going to see culturally that that's the way both Jewish and Roman society operated, but there's nothing really specific that ties it back. Now, I think when we get to the end here and we see what was really going on and causing the issues, I think all of this will click and fall into place. Um, but the one part that I'll just tell you, it doesn't fully match up is this law piece. I, I still am not convinced that we know exactly what he was referring to when he talks about the law. But does he maybe mean that that's the beginning of the sentence, as the law says, if there is any? I, I thought that's what he meant. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I was just curious if, like, you know, because we look at it, but should be in submission as the law also says, mm -hmm. but maybe he's not even referring to the submission and the speak portion. He's right. referring to, you know, like, I, again, I don't know mm -hmm. the law, but, like, you know, to your point, what the law is, but right. if, if you apply it to the second part of it, it completely changes the whole context of it. True. Yeah. And I suppose that that's a possibility. Offhand, I don't know of any Old Testament verses that specifically command a man to be the one to teach his wife at home. Like, and, and maybe they exist and I'm not aware of them. I'm not thinking of them in the moment, but I don't, again, like in all of my research and studying on this, that's not an interpretation that anybody has put forth. And so I think if there was a very clear Old Testament law from Leviticus or Deuteronomy or something like that, then it would be like, actually, this verse belongs here and it ties back to Deuteronomy 22. And there you go. That I haven't read that in all of my reading on this. And so that makes me think that they're probably that verse probably doesn't exist in the Old Testament either. Yep. Possibility. I'm going to do some digging on it for sure. Okay. Good insight. So I have an observation, a little story time, but a small observation on a complementarian view that I find interesting. It's a really tiny thing. So when we were moving here, um, we moved from Florida, we stopped in Texas for a month, and then we loaded up our U-Haul again and we came to Calgary. So we pulled into Calgary and it was like this hi, that we were both riding on. He's driving the U-Haul. I'm driving my Mini Cooper. I've got my dog in my lap. And I like come over the hill from Okotoks and you can like see the city. And it, it was like the Holy Spirit was just like, here's your city. And I was just like riding on this amazing high, pulling under a city for the first time. And I'm just feeling it like, God, you're going to do a great work here. And so uh, somehow we had gotten connected with a mission team from that was in the city partnering with another church and they had heard that we were coming in that day and they wanted to help us unload and unpack so we show up they're at our house like art we pull in they're there and i'm the first one to get out and again i'm hyped i'm like i'm in calgary like let's go just spread jesus and and so i come in hot and I'm like, guys, I'm so pumped you're here. And like, and, and I'm just like pumped, you know? And I can instantly tell that they're on the complementarian spectrum of women need to be silent. And, and it's so funny to me, like reading through this, talking through it, even the verses say silent in the churches, right? So even if we're in that perspective, but it, it gets skewed over time, this is just an observation of my, my own, but it gets skewed sometimes and gets over abused where a woman can walk into a situation and they're expected to just be silent, to just be, 
be humble, be submissive, be silent. Don't be your overexcited self. Because when I came in hot, I could see it on their faces. And again, this is a tiny thing that I could be overreading, right? But it wasn't until Daniel came in and was like, okay, let's start doing this because I'm starting to direct them on, okay, let's get some boxes here. And they're like, I'm going to put my hands in my pocket. Where's Dan? <laughs> and, you know, and then like, and then he comes in and like, okay, let's get to work. And I'm like, that was weird, mm. you know? But, but again, like if their view is women should be silent and they stop right there, like it, it gets abused, right? And that's where the abuse can come in. That's really unhealthy. Sure. That's fair. Okay. So um, whatever law Paul's referring to here, okay, because again, we don't fully know. What we can point out very clearly is that the law he's referencing does not command silence. Instead, it commands submission. That's your, that's your blank there under uh, letter C, submission. Now, submission is a dirty word. I get it. Nobody, <laughs> you know, nobody likes the idea of submission. But what we're going to discover when we start talking about um, at the end of our discussion towards the end of next month, when we start talking about the roles of Christian husbands and wives and like how a household should be run according to Ephesians 5 and, you know, 2, Tim, or 2 Peter and, and different things like that, um, what we're going to discover is that submission is commanded for all Christians, so like you read uh, Ephesians 5.22 and it's like, wives submit to your husbands, right? But when we read only that verse and we ignore verse 21, which says all of you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, then we're qualifying submission in a way that actually it denies what biblical submission is. I mean, I don't want to spoil too much here, but forced submission is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You can't force Submission, because submission is always a choice. It is choosing to place yourself under somebody else, to deny yourself for their good, for their benefit. That's what submission is. And so anyway, um, whatever law Paul is referencing here in um, in this verse, it, it, re it requires submission and not silence. So there's no law that Paul is talking about that says, of course, women need to be silent. The law tells us as much. So the key interpretive phrase in this passage, okay? Let me, let me take a step back here. Uh, I told you at the beginning that, uh, unfortunately, one of the ways that this passage is often interpreted by complementarians is through the lens of 1 Timothy 2. And the reason that that's problematic is that the Corinthians who got this letter didn't have 1 Timothy 2. And so if we can't understand 1 Corinthians 14 without also having 1 Timothy 2, then Paul essentially wrote that church nonsense because they didn't have all the information they needed to actually do the thing that he told them to do. Does that make sense? In fact, most of the churches would not have had those two letters together for a couple of hundred years at least. And so for the earliest portion of the church's history, if we need 1 Timothy 2 in order to understand 1 Corinthians 14, then we didn't have the clues that we needed and the early church could not have possibly obeyed this, okay? That's problematic. Then I told you a better way, a better lens, a better context to interpret 1 Corinthians 14 uh, in is like within its section of the letter in which Paul is dealing with disruptive elements within the church, highlighting some examples and saying, this is what you need to straighten out. But like if it's, if it's better to go more localized, if it's better to get more focused and take a smaller section and make your interpretation based on that, then the, the key phrase to interpret this passage is not found in 1 Timothy 2. It's not found in 1 Corinthians 11. It's actually found right there in verse 35, okay? In verse 35, Paul says, if there's anything that these women, your women, okay? Again, I told you when he writes here, the, the way the Greek is written, uh, he says, um, your women should keep silent in the churches. It's second person plural. Your women need to keep silent, not the women or all women, okay? Um, the, the key here to understanding why those women should be silent is he says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. This is the key to understanding this entire section, okay? So uh, uh, the last statement on the page is that in this text, Paul silences women who are disrupting the worship service by asking questions, asking questions that are elementary, tangential, or repetitive. 
By tangential, if you're not familiar with that word, it means it like goes off on a rabbit trail, chases in a different direction, okay? Paul is silencing women who are disrupting the worship service by asking questions that are elementary, tangential, or repetitive. If we, um, if, if we ignore this part, this, uh, you know, if they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. If we ignore that, um, then, yeah, we might be able to kind of force like silence on women in general. But if we consider the actual Greek word that's used here, which is silence by choice, and then we couple it with the fact that Paul didn't write that phrase in a vacuum. You understand what I'm saying? It's not like that came out of left field. He wasn't making this up in his mind. He was like, you know, I bet your women have questions. They better not ask them in church. It wasn't like hypothetical. Everything that he said when he addressed their Lord's Supper issue, he wasn't saying like, hypothetically, if any of y'all got drunk in the Lord's Supper, that would be a problem. No, he says, I heard that you guys were getting sloshed at the Lord's Supper. Communion ain't the place for that. If you want to have a drink, have a drink at home. Same thing here. He's not addressing some hypothetical thing in which women might be asking questions and being disruptive. Women are clearly asking questions and being disruptive. That's why he says it. So what, what's the evidence um, on, the, on the next page? We list out some of the evidence that we have, or at least a framework for believing that uh, what I just said was true. Paul is silencing women who are disrupting the, the services with um, stupid questions, frankly. Okay. Um, so first, uh, what I want you guys to, to kind of understand is that church services in the first century were quite a bit different than church services today, okay? If you guys went to a first century church, it really looks nothing like Connect, and it looks nothing like First Assembly, and it looks nothing even like the house churches that some of you have been a part of. It was a very, very different thing. So it did take place in homes, that's true, Um but one of the ways in which it was vastly different is that everybody who showed up to a church service was expected to contribute, not merely watch. That's your blank there. Um, everybody is expected to contribute and not merely watch. This is why Paul said in verse 26, we read it a moment ago, he says, when you meet together, one's going to sing, another's going to teach, another's going to tell some special revelation or speak in tongues, another's going to interpret. And then he's like, okay, the problem that you guys have is that all of you are trying to to be heard in the service. You've all got something that you want to bring to the table or contribute. And because everybody's trying to talk, no, there's no order, there's no deference. It's like, no, I just want to be heard. You guys have gotten completely disordered here. Um, but the expectation was when you came to church, you couldn't sit back and watch. There weren't observers. You had to bring something. You had to be ready or open or willing to actually minister in the church service. Like it, the expectation, and it's not to say like if there are 40 people in the room, 40 people have to say something, but the expectation is you would participate and contribute in that worship service in some way, shape, or form. This included both men and women. Again, I'll point you back to chapter 11, verses four and five, when Paul says, if a woman's gonna prophesy in the services the way she's gotta do it, okay? So um, firstly, Everybody was expected to contribute. You couldn't just show up, sit in the back, watch, and then go home. Christianity was not a spectator sport in the first century. Frankly, I find this very convicting. Um, sometimes Connect slips into spectator sport. Sometimes we slip into the restaurant where I prepare a nice meal and I serve it to you on a plate and you eat and then you go home and spiritually you don't eat again for another seven days. That's problematic. And that's, I mean, like that, you know what I mean? I wrestle with that. Um, do I think then that we should, you know, just start meeting in homes and all of you guys should show up on Sunday with some message or word or song you wrote or prayer or whatever? It's like, yeah, the people in this room might be cool with that, but the people that are coming on Sundays probably wouldn't. And so if we go this way, we lose them, right? So it's like, there's a tension. And, and I think it's about figuring out how to honor best this mm -hmm. tension and, like what God calls if, us to do. If you've ever wondered why we push for people to be on the team so hard, mm -hmm. this is a main yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like we are all supposed to contribute. Mm -hmm. You hear from us say all the time, you're supposed to share your time, your talent, and your treasure. All of it, all together, because this is the biblical example. Anyway, okay. that's a side note. So um, in line with that, the Bible was often taught using a form of the Socratic method. Socratic method is the next blank there. You may be familiar with the Socratic method. It's kind of making a comeback 
slack in educational circles and things like that. The Socratic method, I've got a quote here from the University of Colorado's Department of Philosophy. They said it was developed by the Greek philosopher Socrates. Remember, Corinth was in Greek, uh, in Greece. Um, this was a few hundred years after Socrates. Um, developed by the Greek philosopher Socrates, the Socratic method is a dialogue. So it's a discussion. It's a conversation, not a presentation. Okay, so in the first century house church, the pastor wouldn't get up, walk on stage, deliver a 35 message, 35 minute message, and then walk back to his green room. Okay, Um, I don't have a green room. I'm a little disappointed, (laughs) but whatever. Um, That's not how it worked. There was much more dialogue. So when Terry popped up a minute ago and said, but wait, 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 now what about this and this and this and this? This is kind of a a form of Socratic method where there is constant back and forth. There's question and answer and more questions. And like, I'm going to answer your question by by posing a deeper question. You know, it's those sorts of things. And this was really common in the first century and really common in house churches as well. Um, So again, uh, it's a dialogue between teacher and students instigated by the continual probing questions of the teacher in a concerted effort to explore the underlying beliefs that shape the students' views and opinions. Sometimes in the message, you could interrupt the pastor who's speaking and say, but I've got a question and things like that. The problem is you can imagine that would get really disruptive. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Somebody's speaking and somebody else pipes in and it's like, well, if you would get, let me say my next two sentences and I'm going to answer your question, right? Um, So it's very, very disruptive if the dialogue um, got carried away. Okay, And so this was a problem. It was a problem in um, early Greek learning. Uh, It was a problem in the early church. I I grew up in a church and I remember I was I was a younger kid, but I remember um, we had Sunday morning and Sunday night church. Mm -hmm. And Sunday night was supposed to be almost just as formal as Sunday morning. You know, same type of format, but a bit more a lot more traditional than we we act today. Um, but there was this family and this guy in particular who loved to talk during the sermon, mm-hmm. like talk directly to the pastor. Mm-hmm. And and I remember he would sit on the first row and anything that he was like, yeah, but I don't really agree with that. What do you think about And he would just say it. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's like 500 people in the room and, and he would just, and then it would distract the pastor and right. he would look, and then they would start going back and forth. And then finally the pastor had, well, I got to keep going. So, and, you know, and he'd go back to his sermon being like completely derailed for a while. And it, and it would just kind of commandeer oh, yeah. the entire service. You want to know who's the master at this? Hmm. Junior high boys. Like, <laughs> you try, you're a youth pastor and you're trying it's to deliver so a message on Wednesday so night. True. And he's like, yeah, but what about, and he just like, he's trying, you know how it is? Like when, you remember when you'd have subs at like in class and you're like, I'm just going to get them talking about something, get them off subject. They don't care. You know what I mean? It's like that sort of thing. And it is a very real issue. You could imagine on Sundays, if everybody who disagreed with everything I said, said so out loud. Or if, um, you know, everybody who had a question about something, like if I, if somebody has a question today about something I say, then they'll catch me in the lobby after the service. That happens a couple times a month at least. Or they'll send me an email, also happens a couple times a month. And they're saying, look, I, I need some clarity or I've always heard that. How does that relate? You know, those sorts of things. You could imagine even in a house church. So a typical house church in the first century would have had like 40 people. Okay. So it was not very large, not even much bigger than where we are right now. But just imagine, Like if I'm trying to do a teaching and you guys just start voicing every single question that you have, like very quickly, we're not going to get through the material. Right. And so um, this was a it was a major issue that that this sort of learning kind of uh, brought to the forefront. Okay, so church services in the first century were quite a bit different than those today. Everybody was expected to participate. And usually it involved a lot of dialogue question back and forth. Okay. The second fact here is that in the Roman and Jewish world, men and women were typically educated only until they were old enough to marry. This was the standard. So women were educated 100%, but they stopped being educated once they were old enough to make babies. That's really what it comes down to. And so they needed to be smart enough to run a household 
and nothing more. We didn't want them any smarter than that. Men, on the other hand, they needed to be fully educated because they were full citizens. They were going to be involved in business and government. They were going to lead religion, you know, religiously and all these different things. And so um, I note here in, on your um, page that males were often married at around 30 years old. That was the typical age of marriage uh, for a Roman man in the first century, okay? Girls were most typically married between 12 and 14 years old. People get arrested for that stuff today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, unless you're in some of those eastern provinces. But anyway. Um, what? <laughs> what? No, they, like, they're, I don't know what the, what? Like, the, like in the States, for instance, in the States, for instance, like girls can get married in various states at like 15, 16. And I'm sure it's the same here. It wouldn't surprise me at all. No, it's Okay, so what is it? Is it is it a hard 18 or is it 16? Okay, so like, so like these like although 14 is super young, apparently it's not that far off in Canada either. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. Okay, so the reason that this matters is it meant that males typically got more than double the education that females did. Like in terms of the number of years that they would undergo tutelage of some kind, they're like, it's more than double. But beyond that, you guys know that when you're young, you learn very slowly and simply. And then the more educated and mature you get, your level of education ramps up a lot. So that the difference between junior high and high school might not be that big, but the difference between a master's level degree and a PhD is very significant, right? Because it's not a linear kind of acceleration. And so uh, a 30-year-old wouldn't just have double the amount of education. Uh, a 30-year-old male might have three, four, five, six times the education that an average woman would at the time. This was true both in the Roman world and in the Jewish world. I mean, we know this to be true, the, the 30 to the 14, to be true because of Joseph and Mary. Like Mary, mm -hmm. Mary yeah. is proven to be um, around 14 or 15 years old and Joseph was significantly older. Yeah. And some of that has to do with the fact that like as the man, you're the one who has to provide for your wife, right? So like if you're both 18 and you're both going to go into the workforce, then yeah, you can probably afford to support a whole household on two incomes. But if you can only have one income, then a guy probably needs to be a little bit older, a little more stable, you know, those sorts of things in order to do it. So um, uh, as I mentioned, this was true of both the Roman world and the Jewish world. So Josephus, who's a very, very prominent, famous, and important Jewish historian. He lived in the first century. So he was a few decades after Jesus, right the exact same time as the Apostle Paul, okay? Um, arguably, Josephus is just slightly less famous than Paul, but he's way, way up there in, in terms of um, historians and religious figures from the time. He wrote, women are in all ways inferior to men. Like blanket statement, you guys are just not as good, not as smart, not as much as we are, okay? Then uh, there is, oh man, if you guys ever want a trip, just go into Google and type <laughs> juvenile, all right? J-U-V-E-N-A-L, not the rapper, um, not the, like, okay, juvenile was a Roman poet and um, he was very sarcastic and he was particularly sarcastic against women, foreigners, and religious people, Okay. He was a super mean dude. Um, so he wrote in one of his poems, let not your wife possess a special learning all her own. Let not her hurl at you in whirling speech her crooked logic. Let not her know all history. Let there be things in her reading which she does not understand. Essentially, like, don't let her get too smart. She needs to rely on you guys. Like, that's really what it comes down to. Don't let her get too educated because then you won't be able to control her quite as much. And like, this is not an isolated, like I, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to read this passage and this passage and this passage, but I'll save you. You can Google it. Um, the point here is that in this society that Paul is writing to, it doesn't matter whether these were Jewish Christians or these were Greek converts, women were not educated anywhere close to what men were educated. So now catch this. We have church services in which everybody's supposed to contribute, 
but we have half the population that doesn't have a very high education. You might see where this is starting to go. The third thing I note here is that the message of Jesus explicitly included women as equal heirs of salvation and ministers of the message, ministers of the good news. So, I've noted a few verses. There are plenty of them that we could kind of talk about. But um, we could look at Galatians 3.28, which says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, yes, this verse is about salvation. We're going to talk about why it extends beyond just that narrow subject. But the point here is um, women can be saved. They are equal heirs of salvation. I think I mentioned to you guys before in the group that like um, in in Old Testament thinking, women were saved. So their husbands were members of the covenant and they were saved by inclusion either in their husband's family or their father's family. Women were not saved in and of themselves. They were saved because they were a part of some male family. All right. Um, in Acts chapter number two, verse 17. What, what do you mean by saved? They were included in the covenant. Okay. Like they were the inheritors of God's promises and his blessings because they belonged to a Jewish man's family. Yeah. So also like when back in the Old Testament, when people are making sacrifices, like mm -hmm. the male made mm -hmm. the sacrifice of the pure lamb, yeah. then then that would have covered the whole family. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so uh, Acts chapter two, verse 17, very important verse. We're going to spend some time talking about this later in our uh, group. Uh, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And then later in that same passage, Peter says, this verse is fulfilled in your sight. So it's not like in the last days at the end times after the rapture at Armageddon, that's when this is going to happen. No, Peter says like right now in the church age, this is coming to pass. And then 1 Peter 2.9, um, this is written like plurally. It's to both men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, right? He says, for you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. He goes on to say, I didn't quote it here, but he goes on to say, you're able to make God known to the world, right? So like there is both a, a, a salvation element and a ministry element to the message of Jesus that includes both ma male and female here. We've got now uh, church services in which everybody's meant to participate, the message of Jesus, or a, a world in which women were not educated, but then Jesus' message basically opening doors of opportunity to women that they have not had. They haven't typically had in the Roman pagan cults, but they certainly haven't had in the Jewish faith at all. So when when the doors of opportunity are kind of opened and, and women are no longer commanded or required to be silent, but they're given opportunities to pray and to prophesy or to teach or to witness or to sing or whatever the case may be, when all of this happens, it's it's not hard to imagine how they kind of like got real amped about it, about the opportunity, about how like now that they can talk, they want to talk. Now that they're allowed to ask questions, they got a million of them, right? Their whole life, they've been told, your brain is not comprehending. Your brain is not capable of comprehending. These are the deep mysteries of God and, and only men are able to. And then Paul comes along and he says, no, there's no difference between male or female. You guys are heirs of salvation. You have the same image of God. You have the same spirit of God dwelling within you and you're a part of the same body. So now suddenly women are expected to participate. They're able to be involved in ways that they haven't been in any way, shape or form. The problem is... They haven't been educated. They haven't been taught. So you can imagine in a service where the, the teacher is teaching and the women are like, well, my husband asked questions and that's cool. I've got questions. Let me ask. The problem seems to be the questions they were asking were of such a basic nature because they just didn't know. Like they weren't taught any of this stuff that the pastor, the preacher, teacher, whatever is having to digress and go back to either things that are too elementary 
or things that are too tangential. It's like, well, what about this verse? Or what I heard one time that Abraham did that. And it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. Like, like we could talk about that later, maybe sort of thing. Or perhaps it was repetitive. It's like, we're constantly going over the same things. We get a little hint of this with Peter and um, his words to the church in which he talks about meat and milk. He's like, look, you guys, you've been at this long enough now that you shouldn't need, you shouldn't need milk. Babies need milk. Adult people eat meat and you guys should be eating meat of the word. You should be beyond the basics, beyond the elementary. You should be digesting some of the heavier, meatier, weightier stuff. And I think there's a little bit of the same thing going on here where it's like in the church service, we're trying to, to, to expose the riches of the gospel. But unfortunately, because women had been uneducated and not they didn't have the opportunity to participate for so long that when they got it, it seems that they were asking questions that were turning out to be disruptive. Otherwise, it makes no sense for the Apostle Paul to say, when those ladies have questions, tell them to ask their husbands at home. By the way, the, the passage actually says, ask your men at home. It doesn't say, like I told you, the word could be translated husbands or men. The, the best way to interpret this, and pretty much everybody agrees, is like men. So ask your dad, ask your brother, ask your uh, husband, ask your whoever. Why? Not because they have authority over you, not because they are you know, capable of understanding things that you aren't simply because they've been educated. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. That's really what this comes down to. So notice when the women are asking questions, Paul never says, ladies, 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 you're not supposed to be asking questions. Who told you that was okay? He doesn't say that, right? Um, he doesn't follow what juvenile said and, and tell uh, the men, listen, keep your women dumb. That's, that's the best thing you can do. Don't teach them. If they have questions, lie to them. Give them fake answers so that, you know what I'm saying? He, he doesn't do that. In fact, like again, if we're going to take this passage for what it says, Paul commands women to be taught. He commands that the men in their lives, the ones who have been educated in these things, give them the answers so that they will then have the same knowledge and be able to participate in the worship service in a way that's not disruptive. And each week we talk about how Paul wasn't anti-women. He was actually advocating for women. He was, yes. And when you really understand it, you see, and you don't have to hate Paul and every writing that he did in the <laughs> this Bible. This was an incredibly progressive thing in his day to tell husbands that they have a responsibility to instruct their wives in the Lord, to tell fathers, no, 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 you don't need to fear giving your daughter an education. Like tell her the answers, give her the truth. Like this is so progressive. Later on, we're not even gonna get into this really. I don't think anyone, I don't think there's any time this will come up. But like when Paul tells slave owners, receive your slaves as brothers, don't treat them harshly, treat them as equals in the Lord. To us, we're like, you can't have people. You can't own people. You can't be a slave owner. But for him, like that was such a progressive thing that that became, in fact, we are going to talk about this a little bit, but anyway, that became the thing that led society to change the way that we viewed slavery simply because Paul was saying, these are equals. They're not subhumans. Um, uh, you know, people with darker skin tones are not subhuman. People with, um, XX chromosome, XY, why am I blank? XX chromosomes. They're not subhuman, okay? They are equal creations of God. They bear his image. They have his spirit. They belong in the same body. They're co-heirs of all of the things that Jesus promised. And so um, I think here, the most likely explanation is that Corinthian women were latching on to their newfound inclusion in the worship service, and they were dis disrupting the gathering via elementary, tangential, or repetitive questions. So that means the intended meaning of 1 Corinthians 14 is not to silence women from speaking, but to silence them from speaking without first learning. That's the, the final blank there. They're supposed to learn. Um, <clears throat> Paul doesn't want women excluded from teaching. He wants uneducated women to be excluded from teaching. And frankly, Paul would say, I want uneducated men to be excluded from teaching as well. This is part of the reason that um, in 1 Timothy, when he talks about um, uh, laying hands on and um, not nominating, what is the word I'm looking for? Sorry, it's late and I've had a long day. Um, when we're talking about um, ordaining elders, um, he says, don't ordain a novice. Don't ordain somebody that's new to the faith. Part of it is 
because they need time to learn. They need to grow. They need to understand sound doctrine before they can function in the elder role within the church. And so he would say in the same way, don't, I would silence uneducated or unlearned men that were being disruptive in the questions they asked or the, the things that they might be teaching that are not in line with true and sound doctrine. In my head, I don't know, are any of you guys Friends fans? Like you watch the, okay. So in my head, I like see Joey Tribbiani and Ross Geller talking and, and he's like trying to coach him about something and a word comes up and he's like, what incomprehensible? What, what do you mean? And he's like, I don't have time. Let's move on. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's kind of that situation, like that these people didn't have enough education. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just get stuck on explaining and defining every single word. Right. Okay. So Sorry. please I jump in. Yes. Encouragement, though, in yeah. Verse, please study to show yourself. A, yes. A workman that needed not to be ashamed. Yeah. So he's encouraging them. Mm-hmm. Yep. To study. That's right. So yeah, that's to all of us. It yeah. is a hundred. We could all be ashamed. Yes. Right. Don't yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. I love that connection. That's a great, that's a great reference to keep in mind because it is, although it's written to Timothy as a, a pastor or an elder, um, certainly that applies to everybody. Like is Paul saying, well, if you're not an elder in the church, then you don't need to study. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to learn and grow and rightly divide the word and stuff. No, of course not. And so, um, yeah, I think like this is the best way to understand this passage. If this is not the intended meaning, this is not the correct understanding of what was going on in the Corinthian church, then what we have to do is we have to account for why Paul brought up the question and answer thing. And, and frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense from the complementarian perspective to simply say, oh, it was a hypothetical, which is typically what they'll say, because nothing he's dealing with in this passage is hypothetical. Yeah, I, I think also the last uh, part of that uh, report said, that's probably why I said it is shameful mm -hmm. for a woman mm -hmm. to speak in mm -hmm. this because there's nothing shameful about a woman that is knowledgeable yeah. to speak mm -hmm. in the church. But when a woman is not knowledgeable, yeah. then it is shameful to bring ignorance in the open. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it goes back that, that word shameful. I mean, we talked a little bit about it last week about how it means like it's inappropriate. It means it's culturally um, negative. You know, it's those sorts of things. Like we look at shameful and we think like, I don't know, maybe like God has ordained it so that it is a shameful thing for a woman to speak. But like, that's not what the apostle Paul had in mind. He had this cultural thing and culturally speaking, women simply didn't know. Um, there were uh, well-to-do Roman women. There are examples of Jewish women. We've talked about some of them in weeks past who were educated and they did know. We think of like Priscilla and she educated Apollos, right? She, she more accurately taught him the way of God. And Paul never says like, girl, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to be silent. You're, you're not, you know? So I think like we have to keep this within the context that it was originally written in, in order to make sense of it. If we start to try to universalize everything in the Bible, then we're going to run into a lot of difficulty, um, A, making sense of it, but B, even putting it into practice, right? Like it's just, it's not going to work.